My name's Jared. I'm the executive pastor here, and that means I do all the uh, boring business kind of things that nobody else wants to do. Uh, As you may know, Doug, our senior minister, he's going to be out of town this summer, uh, and in town some, but not here at church, working on some things, getting ready for the fall. So I'll be teaching most weeks through the summer. Dylan, our children's minister, will be teaching some as well. So uh, today we begin a series called Ten. We'll be talking about the Ten Commandments all summer, one commandment every week. Now I already know what you're thinking. Um, First... Did it really happen like what was in that video? You're like starting to get nervous because there's five commandments out there and you're not sure what they are. That was just to make sure you were paying attention. So we want to give you some donuts this morning, get you sugared up a little bit, and uh, make sure you're paying attention and awake before we jump in. The second thing that you're thinking is, uh, I don't know, Ten Commandments sound a little boring. I know you're thinking that because I had a conversation a few weeks ago in the parking lot with someone. I'm not going to mention his name, but his initials uh, are Sean Foster. (laughs) So uh, the conversation was actually very cool. I think Sean might have felt a little bad about this because the conversation was very cool. He knew that I was going to be teaching through the summer and uh, that that was going to be added stress. And he just said, so are you ready for summer? Are you excited about it? What's going on? And I said, yeah, Sean. Thanks for asking. That means a lot. I'm ready to get rolling. Summer is going to be fun. We're going to have, you know, we're going to have donuts that first week of the 10 series. We're going to do some fun stuff all the way through. We are, we're going to have a fun time. He said, oh, what are you teaching on? And I said, the Ten Commandments. He said, you mean the ones from the Old Testament? And I said, yeah, those are the Ten Commandments I'm talking about. He said, you mean all the rules that God gave us before Jesus came and saved us with grace? And I said, yeah, those Ten Commandments. And he said, well, that doesn't sound very fun. So um, I know some of you are thinking the Ten Commandments sound a little boring. And I do have to tell you, uh, that was my version of the conversation. I may have embellished a little bit on that. But uh, I know that some people think the Ten Commandments might be a little boring. I know everyone in the room today has some kind of idea of what the Ten Commandments are and what we're going to be talking about. Even people who haven't grown up in church have heard of these. You've already got your mind made up about these ten rules. Some of you grew up in church and you've been learning to follow Jesus your whole life. You may have memorized these ten commandments at church camp or at VBS. I think at church camp they were worth like 500 points if you could remember all of the ten commandments. You may even have them hanging on a wall in your office or in your house. And and you're excited about this message because you've spent your whole life working hard to make sure that you're following these rules. As the song that we started with, the Johnny Cash song, you have walked the line. Some of you may be uh, thinking a little bit different. You may be thinking about that movie, not that movie. There's another Ten Commandments movie uh, called The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston's in that one. He has a gray beard. He comes down from the mountain. The coolest special effects that they could muster up in 1950 were in these movies. I remember when I was a kid, before DVRs and Redbox, that that movie was on every Easter. It was on one of the four channels that we got at our house. I don't remember which one. Some of you may be thinking a little bit different, though. You may be thinking, you know, I grew up going to church with Grandma, and I remember church being all about rules, and you had to follow the rules. And if you followed the rules well enough, maybe uh, God would let you be part of His family. And maybe um, God seemed to you like a faraway dictator. And if we followed those rules well enough, God would love us. Maybe you've seen the play Hamilton. 
that historical play about when uh, King George comes out and sings that song, You'll Be Back. I'm tempted to sing a few lines of it right now. But King George comes out and he say, he's singing this song about you'll be back and he's talking about how he's just trying to keep the colonies over here under his thumb. You might think God's kind of like that. God's like King George. He's a faraway dictator. He's just trying to keep his thumb on his people. And maybe that's what you think of when you hear Ten Commandments. And you've been away from church for decades now and you come back finally to see if anything's changed, and you find out we're still talking about the same old rules, and you're a little disappointed about that. I hope you'll stay with me as we talk about these. I hope you'll stay with me so we can talk about the context of how God gave us these Ten Commandments. I hope over the next ten weeks we can dive deeper into God's Word and discover the meaning that's bigger than what maybe we've understood before, and we can see how this applies to, to our lives. So today we won't take a specific command, but we'll be laying the groundwork for the rest of the series. And to do that, we have to spend some time looking at the history up to the point of God giving his law. That's another word that we're going to use for the Ten Commandments, the law. We'll be working our way up to Exodus 20 today and then the next nine weeks over the Ten Commandments. So today we're going to start all the way back in the book of Genesis. So... uh, We're going to be uh, digging really shallow in all these stories, just scratching the surface. But I think it's important that we all read through those on our own this week. So all of them are in in your bulletin. We've marked all those scriptures in there. This week you can go take a look at those and see for yourself what God's doing. But in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Some of this is going to be old news to you. Some of it's going to be new news. But God creates everything. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars and the land and the land critters and the sea critters. He creates it all. He creates man and woman. Their names were Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So that tells me that all of us here have been created in God's image. We all have some of the attributes of God within who we are. We're wired to be like the way God is, to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those sorts of things. Adam and Eve had all of those things too. They were made in the image of God. There really wasn't any written law at the time. Certainly the Ten Commandments weren't around yet. There was one rule. Don't eat from this one particular tree. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat from any plant they wanted, but not from that plant. They lived in the constant presence of God. They were created by God to do that. They were created to never die and to never be separated from God. Now, I was excited when I heard that Sidney was playing the violin this week. Um, Because I love the violin. I found out uh, years ago, I never knew my grandfather played the violin until after he passed away. But I found out years ago that he played the violin. I've been interested in it ever since. As a matter of fact, I have a violin at my house. And I love violins because they are beautiful to look at, but they also make beautiful music. Now, my violin at my house sits under my bed and collects dust. I don't play it at all. It doesn't do what it was created to do, and it really is useless. But when Sidney plays the violin, you, you hear how great it is when we do what we're created to do. When the violin does what it's created to do, it's beautiful. So I was just thinking about how that compares to us, and Adam and Eve were like that. They were living the way God created them to live, and it was beautiful. 
But they chose to live outside of that. And we call that sin. When we live outside of the way God created us to live. In competition archery, you shoot at a bullseye. And if you miss the bullseye, if you miss the mark, it's called a sin. That's how it's scored. It's exactly what we mean when we talk about sin spiritually too. We've missed the mark of how God created us to live. The thing about sin is it always leads to suffering. It's important that we remember that. I'm going to repeat that several times today, and I might need some help just remembering what we're saying here. Sin always leads to suffering. So you guys can help me with that. I might say something like, sin always leads to, and you would say, suffering. That would be helpful. That will just keep you on your toes, David Wecker. It's going to keep you on your toes. All right. So um, Adam and Eve sinned. They missed the mark. They lived outside of the way God created them to live by eating from the tree of good and evil. And what always comes after sin? Some people would say, well, you know, that's just a story. It's a good illustration, but it really didn't happen. But I'm convinced that that story of Adam and Eve is a historical account, and I can see how God's moving to teach us something about Jesus in that story. Because if you look all the way back at Luke chapter 24, Jesus himself says this, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, about Jesus, in the prophets and the Psalms, those were about Jesus, must be fulfilled. All those things written in the Bible before the Old Testament helps us understand something about Jesus. They point to Jesus. So because Adam sinned, a propensity for sin is now in all of us, his offspring. When you have a child, you pass on certain characteristics to your child. I see that in my family. My wife reminds me of that all the time. When the kids misbehave, guess whose children they are? They're my children. They're not Angie's children. My oldest son has a propensity uh, as well. He worries. Anybody have kids that worry? He worries he's going to miss a catch in football. He worries he's going to, how he's going to do on his test. He worries if he's going to get his license. He worries about which college he's going to go to. And he worries if Louisville will beat Clemson in football this year. I keep telling him, don't worry. God's got this. God cares for the birds. He cares for the flowers. How much more does he care for you? But deep down, I know that it worries something he got from me because I worry about all kinds of things. I have passed that propensity to worry onto my child. And just the same way Adam, who was created in God's image and passed God's image onto his children, he passed a marred image of God. It was an image that was messed up because of that sin that Adam had done. He passes on an image that's capable of sin and evil. Adam's children all had the propensity to live outside of the way that God created them to live. And that's been passed down generation after generation after generation all the way to me and you. Sin literally entered the whole world through one man, Adam. And now it affects every human that's ever lived. Not original sin in the sense that we're guilty when we're born, but that we're born with a thirst to do evil things, to do things our own way, not God's way. And I know this story is about Jesus. Because I know that just as sin entered the world through Adam, grace and salvation also entered the world through one man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as 
Uh, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. And I suggest you read uh, those stories so you can see how Jesus is moving. But we have to move on. We can only scratch the surface. We see how the story of Adam and Eve points us to Jesus. And we're going to move on now to the story of Abraham. A lot of time has passed. God chooses Abraham to bring forth his nation. And ultimately, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a baby. Abraham would be the father of a great nation. The problem was Abraham and Sarah were old. So Abraham and Sarah decided that God wasn't able to keep his promise. They decided that they would do it things their way. They would do it on their own and figure that out themselves. And when we live outside of the way God created us to live, that always leads to suffering. So suffering happens, but God did keep his promise. And when Abraham was 90, and when, Sarah, when Abraham was 100, and when Sarah was 90, their son Isaac was born. God kept the promise. And after all that, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his promised son, the son of the promise, his only son. And this time, Abraham trusted God. And God provided another sacrifice in Isaac's place. So after Jesus, if we move forward in the Bible, we look at the book of Hebrews. We see the writer of Hebrews say it this way. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And when he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, he considered that God was able to raise even him from the dead. Which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So even in Hebrews, it points back to the story of Abraham. And we see this picture of God sacrificing his son for us. Some people say, well, that's, that's just a story. It might be a good illustration, but it really didn't happen. But I'm convinced it's a historical account. And I can see how God is moving to point us to Jesus through that story. We don't have time to dig into the details, but you can read about that in Genesis chapter 22. And Isaac then has a son himself. His name is Jacob. And as we near the end of Genesis, we see that this man Jacob has a family, and he has a lot of sons. And one of the sons uh, is named Joseph. He's the younger son, the youngest son. And it's a, a Joseph is a, an arrogant kid. He likes to talk about himself a lot, and his brothers get a little sick of it, if you can imagine that. So they decide to get rid of Joseph. They throw him in a pit, leave him for dead, have a change of heart, go and pull him out of the pit, and decide to be kind and sell him into slavery. They go back and tell their dad Jacob that Joseph is dead. So he's sold into slavery, and he goes off to Egypt as a slave. And Joseph, while he's there, he's in prison, he's a slave, different things are happening, but God raises him up as this political leader, In Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Joseph works his way up through some pretty amazing circumstances. God gives him wisdom. Everything in Egypt was going great. They had a lot of, uh, the crops were doing well. There was a, a huge harvest. Everyone had plenty. But God spoke to Joseph and he said, famine is coming. So store up for the years when you're going to have lack, want, and need. So Joseph does that. And, and, the, and the nation of Egypt survives. So back to his family now. They think he's dead. 
especially his father. His brothers come to Egypt seeking survival because they're in famine. They didn't save up any, any harvest. They come looking for food to Egypt. They hear things are okay there still. And there's this reunion between Joseph and his brothers, and he forgives them. And guess who it's a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus, even though we've sinned and thrown him into a pit and killed him even, that he reconciles with us and forgives us. This story of Joseph points us straight to Jesus as well. Some people say, well, that's just a story. It might be a good illustration, but it didn't really happen. But I'm convinced that it's a historical account, and I can see God moving in that story to teach us something about Jesus. So Jacob uh, moves his family back to Egypt under Joseph, and 440 years past the end of Genesis. We just flew through that whole book. The beginning of Exodus now happens. There's a new Pharaoh in Egypt, and this family of Jacob that entered Egypt as 70 people, 440 years later, is a nation of a few million people, the great nation of Israel. And the new Pharaoh recognizes that this nation, within his nation, is too powerful, and he decides to enslave them. So they're in misery, no hope, no future, and God raises up. Moses. You may have heard of Moses. I wish we had time to dig into the story of Moses. Really, the first 19 chapters of Exodus are about Moses. And you can read that story. And some people would say, well, it's just a story. It didn't really happen. But I'm convinced it's a historical account. And I think you can see Jesus moving through that story of Moses if you take a look. But that story culminates with the story of the Passover. The Passover is still celebrated today by Jewish people. God had brought all kinds of plagues on Egypt, trying to convince Pharaoh that his people need to be set free. But Pharaoh refused. Over and over and over, Pharaoh refused until God brought the plague of death, the death of the firstborn son. In all of Egypt, every firstborn son would die. Any firstborn sons here? I'm firstborn son as well. Some of you are married to firstborn sons. Some of your parent, your father may be a firstborn son. All the firstborns would die except those who followed God. They were told some very specific instructions, those people that followed God at the time. They were told to get a lamb that had no blemish, to kill it, it sounds kind of weird, kill the lamb and put some of the blood on the post of your house. Very specific instructions. And death would pass over your house. Your firstborn son wouldn't have to die. And that is a clear picture of exactly what Jesus did for us 1,500 years later. He is the Lamb of God. For those who trust in Him, eternal death would pass over. And those of us who trust Him will be set free to live forever the way God created us to live, restoring what God had created in Adam and Eve. So, the Pharaoh is crushed in Egypt. All the firstborn die. The Pharaoh lets, lets God's people go. God set them free from slavery. But real freedom comes from living the way God created you to live. So now a nation of a few million former slaves are set free, but they're not living like they're free. They're committing adultery. They're stealing from one another. They're coveting. They're lying. They're not raising their children in the Lord. They're worshiping false gods in addition to the real God. Does that sound familiar? God brought them out of slavery so they could live the way God created them to live, but they weren't doing that. So God's going to speak to them. He's going to be loving and gracious and merciful 
And that brings us up to the Ten Commandments. Now we're up to Exodus chapter 20. Now I tell you all this, this history is important because I believe this. That if we only start in chapter 20 and we read this, do this, don't do that. If you do this, God will punish you. If you don't do that, God will bless you. We miss the point. It's in the context that God has already loved you. God has already served you. God has already set you free. He's already adopted you into his family. It's not about obeying him so that he will love you. It's about him loving you to help you obey. Him loving you and helping you obey. Because obedience, disobedience always leads to... So the context is important. We can't ignore the first 19 chapters of Exodus and launch into morality in the 20th chapter. So here we are, Exodus chapter 20. God is giving his children the law. Now, I think all of us can relate to this. If you have kids, you know that sometimes they do stupid things. If you ever were a kid, you know that you did some stupid things. If, um, you, uh, if you were a kid and did some stupid things, you're probably still thinking, I hope my parents don't find out about that, even as an adult. If you're a teenager now, you've probably recently been told by your parents that you did something stupid. And you probably won't realize how stupid it was until you get older. When kids are starting to rebel and not be smart, parents need to call that out. At our house, it happens around our dinner table. Some houses call it a family meeting. Maybe you sit everybody down on the couch. But there needs to be a time when expectations are set. So if you have a fourth grader who's juuling or smoking, you need to have a conversation about that. If you have a middle schooler who stays out all night, you need to have a conversation about that. If you have a high schooler who's running a gambling ring in your basement, you need to have a conversation about that. Somebody in first service commented that all those ages correlated with my kids, but as far as I know, none of that stuff has happened at my house. When God gathers his children at the base of Mount Sinai and he comes to talk to them about giving in the laws, it's not him saying, do these things and I'll adopt you. It's him saying, I have adopted you. I have set you free from slavery. I need you to do these things because I love you and I know they're good for you and they're good for the people around you. And part of the struggle with the law is that if the law is disconnected from the lawgiver, we can misunderstand the heart of the law. That's why the Pharisees, many years later, they loved the law, but they didn't love Jesus because they just focused on the law, not the lawgiver. So for parents in general, and for dads especially, dads, I want you to hear this, we just don't drop law on our kids. We sit down, we look them in the eye, we kiss them on the forehead, we tell them we love them, we pray over them, we tell them we can't love them anymore because we're wholeheartedly devoted to them no matter what, and then we tell them we want their life to flourish and we want them to be blessed. So we're going to talk about some things and we're going to have to lay down some rules because we don't want them to suffer and we don't want people around them to suffer. That's the father heart of God. And if you separate the law from the father heart of the lawgiver, you end up questioning, is God good? Does God love me? Does God care? Is God interested? Or is God just some faraway dictator like King George who sends over laws just to make sure I obey him? And if I do obey him, I get to be a citizen. I might get to be a part of his family if I obey him well enough. And if I don't, and if I don't obey him, I get to spend the rest of my eternity burning in hell. But that's not it. 
He doesn't want us to be slaves. 2 Peter 2.19 says, People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. So as we're reading this story, some of you are thinking, well, I'm, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not a slave. I live in America, the land of the free. But that's not what Peter says. He says anything that overcomes you, anything that overtakes you, anything that rules over you or reigns, over, or reigns above you, anything like that is your Pharaoh. And it's your master, and it enslaves you. And God didn't create us to be slaves. We don't use this language today, though. We use words like addiction. We say, well, I'm addicted to alcohol. No, you're a slave to alcohol. We say, I'm addicted to drugs. No, you're a slave to those substances. You say, I'm addicted to gambling. No, you're enslaved to the high and the windfall that you, uh, you see. I'm addicted to my own reputation. No, you're, a, you're enslaved and you're worshiping the God that you see in the mirror every morning. Well, I have to maintain my beauty. We're addicted to body image. No, you're enslaved to your appearance. I'm driven by my GPA. I'm driven by my income. I'm driven by my position in the org chart at work. No, you're enslaved to your performance and living outside of the way God created you to live. So how many of you, that's your story? You're ashamed. You're embarrassed. Maybe there are secrets in your life that you hope nobody finds out about. And you would say that you're a Christian that you're following the God of the Bible, but there are parts of your life where you're still in slavery. Every one of us has different things that we're still enslaved over, and the Holy Spirit can help point those out to, to us. It might be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be sex or pornography or power, whatever these things might be, we can be enslaved to them. And that's the condition that we find the children of God in here at the base of Mount Sinai sitting on the proverbial couch around the proverbial dinner table waiting for the family meeting. What will dad say? They had been freed from slavery from Pharaoh were becoming slaves to sin, much like we are. So that's what we're going to look at over the next 10 weeks. But it's not boring. And it's not outdated. And it's not just some list of rules that some faraway dictator wrote. And if we follow them, we get to be part of his family. You are part of the family. You are loved by God. He already set you free. He literally couldn't do any more to show you how much he loves you. And he knows how you were created because he created you. And he knows you were created to live within certain boundaries of the law. And he knows that living outside those boundaries brings suffering. And that's what we'll talk about for the next nine weeks. How can I live the way God created me to live? How can I do these commandments or follow these promises and uh, not look at them as rules of a dictator? And I just got thinking about this violin again. How we've been created in a certain way and that all of us have stepped outside of that. Like my violin at home that just collects dust. Maybe it's in your marriage. You're not living the way God created you in your marriage. You know that you were created for uh, faithfulness in marriage, but you've stepped outside of that. Maybe it's in your relationship with your kids or your parents, and you know you were created to be reconciled in that relationship, but you've been hurt. Maybe it's that you're worshiping another God, like pride or power or money, and you're living outside of the way that God created you to live, and that always leads to suffering. 
And I think deep down you know it does. You know that it leads to suffering. And every time we try to live in a way that's contrary to the way that God created us, it's like this violin being used to drive nails. And it just doesn't work when we use it outside of the way it's created. It just makes a mess. We're created to live in the way that God live in the way that God designed. And if Sydney came out and saw this violin, she would think that's not beautiful. It can't make a beautiful sound. And if I try to play it with, with the team here, it's going to mess everybody around me up too. God doesn't want to see us destroyed. God wants to make us beautiful. And that's why he gave us the law. He knew that if we lived outside of the way that we were created, we would end up like this. But our loving Father doesn't want that for us. He created us to live a life of fulfillment. And I love how uh, Troy shared a scripture with me, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I wanted to just share that today where Moses says this, If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, by keeping his commands and his statutes and his rules, then you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, then I declare today you will surely perish. I have set before you, says Moses, life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life beautiful, fulfilled life. But I also see Jesus moving through the story, through these Ten Commandments. He's, he's been there all along. We should have expected to see him here too. 1,500 years before Jesus is even born, we see him in the Ten Commandments. He knew, he knew that we would mess up sometimes. Just like we know our kids are going to mess up even though we lay down the law. Jesus knew we would step outside of the way we were created. But the sacrifice Jesus made was to bring us back to God, to restore us to the way that he created us, the way he created Adam and Eve. It all comes back around. Jesus came to be our sacrifice and to save us from our rebellious nature and to restore us from this brokenness that is a result of us living outside of the way God created us to live. So if you have lived outside of the, those Ten Commandments up to this point, it doesn't mean we have to stay like this. Jesus wants to reconcile. Jesus wants to rebuild us. The Ten Commandments are really about Jesus. They help us point out the fact that we need a Savior. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And Jesus has been part of all these events that we talked about, all these scriptures that we see. He keeps showing up. But he wants to show up in your story too. And I keep seeing him show up in your story. Some of you out there, I've seen Jesus show up in your story. I've seen him show up in broken marriages that have been reconciled. Jesus showed up. I've seen other people that have been devastated by the loss of death or divorce. And that marriage wasn't reconciled. But I still see Jesus showing up and making you whole. I see people who only cared about themselves starting to turn around and live for Jesus. I see Jesus showing up by people who are incredibly generous, even though before the only thing they cared about was hoarding up more for themselves. He keeps showing up in your story here at Plum Creek over and over and over again. 
He takes what is broken and turns it into something that's beautiful. So I have a challenge today. I think every one of us need to just step back and think, how do I see Jesus moving in my story? Read those passages that I put in the bulletin. I hope you'll take a chance to read those. Look at how they point to Jesus. Commit to being here through the summer to hear more about these Ten Commandments or promises that God makes to us. But if you've never accepted Jesus today, do it today. If you've never accepted Jesus, do it today. You can come down front or contact any of the staff this week because following these Ten Commandments is a great start, but it's never enough to get us to eternal life or fulfilled life. Only Jesus can do that, and he will show up. So that's really the starting point of living a life created by God for you to live, that you would make that decision. You have a chance to do that after I pray, and we're getting ready to sing a song. I just ask that all of us would stand, and I'll pray together, and then we'll sing this song. Father God, just coming to you again, and thank you for uh, today. But, Father, thank you for mostly for your word right now. And I love how every time we turn the page in your word, we see it pointing towards Jesus again and again. Father, it's all about Jesus. So, Father, what we're asking is that you would make our lives all about you as well. Father, we just pray that you would show up in our stories. There are some people here, Father, who have never decided to follow you before, and I pray that you would help them to... Uh, see who you are, and see how you love them. Father, others of us have been following you this whole time since we were very little. We grew up in church, and uh, Father, we just keep following these rules, and, and Father, sometimes we even think just following these rules are going to help us to, to get to heaven, but Father, we know it's all because of Jesus. We can't do it on our own. So Father, right now, I just pray that you would help us to see you moving in our lives, every one of us in different ways. Help us to understand how we might be able to be made beautiful because of what you've done for us, not because of what we've done. We thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.